Good morning, everybody. We're going to start this morning with a confession. Uh, when John and I were communicating about what to do for the music and the other scriptures, all I told him was Psalm 135. No song selections, no other passage selections. So I, I confess I tested God to see how uh, it would all come together this morning. And I think it's just been fantastic. I mean, even Ted's verse that he read and the one Greg just read, everything fits together so far, and it fits perfectly with what we're going to be talking about this morning. Today we're going to go into Psalms, but I want to ask you a question. What is a psalm? Psalms are poems. It's a book of poetry, but they were really songs, and they were written to be sung in public worship. The book of Psalms is not like most of the other books of the Bible. It doesn't tell us a story. It doesn't have a singular message. It doesn't have just one author. Interestingly, the book of Psalms, though, is the book that's quoted most often in the New Testament. Psalms speak to our mind and to our heart. The authors express a wide range of emotions, as will you when you read them. In fact, almost every emotion you can think of is expressed somewhere in the Psalms. And these emotions are not clean and neatly packaged. They're honest and often very raw, and they express the experiences that we have in our own lives. The Psalms, of course, point toward God, but they also point toward Jesus Christ. And in Luke 24, 44, Jesus said after his resurrection, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. I want to finish the introduction this morning with a quote from a pastor I had a few years ago. As he neared retirement, Pastor Bruce said, the older I get, the more time I spend in the Psalms. You know, I'm finding that true in my own life. And I think you will too. The more time you spend in the Psalms, the more time you will want to spend in the Psalms. Today we're going to take apart a Psalm that I think represents many of the topics that are across the entire book. And as I prayed about which one to go to, the Holy Spirit led me to Psalm 135. And that may be one you've not ever read, maybe never studied, unless you were here last week and saw it in the bulletin coming up for this week and read ahead. But take your Bibles, let's turn to Psalm 135. This psalm is called a mosaic because it contains so many illustrations, quotations, and references to other things going on in the Old Testament. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon called it a song full of life, vision, variety, and devotion. It's going to be fun, so let's, uh, let's head to Psalm 135, and we'll start by reading the entire psalm. Praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, praise him, you servants of the Lord, you who minister in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praise to his name, for that is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob to be his own, Israel to be his treasured possession. I know that the Lord is great, that our Lord is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever pleases him, in the heavens and on the earth and in the seas and all their depths. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain. He brings the winds out from his storehouses. He struck down the firstborn of Egypt, the firstborn of men and animals. He sent his signs and wonders into your midst, O Egypt, against Pharaoh and all his servants. He struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, and all the kings of Canaan. And he gave their land as an inheritance, an inheritance to his people Israel. 
Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, through all generations. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nation are silver and gold, made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. O house of Israel, praise the Lord. O house of Aaron, praise the Lord. O house of Levi, praise the Lord. You who fear him, praise the Lord. Praise be to the Lord from Zion, to him who dwells in Jerusalem, praise the Lord. I call the first section of this psalm, God's glory. And as is typical with many psalms, this one starts with words of praise. And not just with words of praise, but a call for us to praise the Lord. And if we look closely, we see first a general call to praise God, followed by the same instruction for three specific groups of people. The first is the servants of the Lord. These would be the Levites. This was the family in charge of continually working round the clock in the temple. Uh, the second would be for the workers in the temple. And the third, it says, is for those in the, house, in the courts of the house of God. That'd be everybody else. That'd be all of us that would, would go to the temple to worship. The author uses poetry, and he uses a triplicate form here uh, as poetry, and also to drive home the point that we are all to praise God. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Reflections on the Psalms, and in it is a chapter on praise. And he says, and I quote, But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. So in commanding us to glorify God, God is inviting us to enjoy him. That was kind of a new thought to me, and I, I really like that thought. Praise is a call to enjoy God through glorifying him. Verse 3 says, praise the Lord for the Lord is good. What does it mean to be good? Theologian Wayne Grudem defines it as the goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good. And all that God is and does is worthy of approval. Well, that definition seemed a little circular to me, but the, the more I thought about it, I really realized that in reality it is correct. All that God is and all that God does is worthy of his own approval. Therefore, he is the final standard of good. And whatever God approves is considered good. So because God is the definition and source of all good, we must realize that God himself is the ultimate good that we seek. The second part of verse 3 instructs us to sing praise to his name, for that is pleasant. And I find that exciting to know that my meager singing is, is pleasant to God when it's praising him. That encourages me to keep on singing. All right, let's look at verse 4. For the Lord has chosen Jacob to be his own, Israel to be his treasured possession. In Genesis 15, God promised Abraham, from whom Jacob and the entire nation of Israel would descend, that they would be as numerous as the stars of the heaven. And this is when Abraham was an old man, and he had no children. In Exodus 19, Moses, then the leader of the Israelites, uh, is told that if, if the people fully obey God and keep his covenant, then they would be a uniquely treasured possession. 
as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation set apart for God. What does that mean for us today? Listen as I read from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. See if any of this sounds familiar. But you, talking to believers, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're told that believers are chosen, royal, holy or set apart, called out, a people belonging to God. We were separated from God by our sinful sinful nature, but as believers who have trusted Christ as Savior, we have received mercy and can now be called the people of God. It's a pretty cool tie, isn't it, between something way back here in Psalms up to something in in the New Testament there. Like I said, Psalms is quoted so many times through the New Testament. So on to verse 5. One of the things I like about the Psalms is that the author actually states what I think about in my mind. So say this out loud with me. I know that the Lord is great, that our Lord is greater than all gods. Note the confidence in the words, I know. The author says, I know the Lord is great. Have you ever said that out loud? I often read, read Psalms out loud. And you should really try that because you have that combination of reading with your eyes, you're speaking it, and then you hear the voice coming back or you hear it inside your head. It just really is impactful because these are poems. And I just learn a lot from reading the Psalms uh, out loud. So it says, I know the Lord is great. A little bit ago in chapter 3, God was good. There's a business book out by Jim Collins called Good to Great. Many of you may have read it. My company uses it as a platform for a lot of things. It's about how good companies became great. So oftentimes we think of good and great as on a scale like this, where it's, you know, we work up through good and we work on our way up to great and on up beyond that. Uh, but that's not what is being expressed here in this passage. Good and great are two different concepts. Remember the common table prayer, God is great, God is good, and we thank him for our food? Even in this simple child's prayer, God's goodness and his greatness are listed as separate distinctions of his character. One commentator listed three traits that characterize God's greatness. I'm just going to list them here, but they'd make a good message or a series of messages someday. The first is that God is great because he is incomprehensible. In Scripture, we see other terms. We see wonderful, we see unsearchable, we see beyond understanding. So for further study this week, write this down. Here's one of your assignments. Psalm 139, 1 through 6. I want you to read that this week. 139, 1 through 6, where David talks about the omniscience of God, the fact that God knows everything and the fact that we can't. So that's one of your assignments. In the New Testament, in Philippians 4, 7, we are told that the peace of God surpasses all understanding, and I like the transcends all comprehension, greater than I can even imagine. The second trait of God's greatness is that he is incorruptible. Uh, In Scripture, we see this expressed in two ways, that he's holy and that he is eternal. His holiness means that he is separate from everything, 
And his eternality means that he is without beginning or end, and these are certainly characteristics of greatness. The third is that God is incomparable. He is the one true God manifesting himself in the trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons in one. Also, the power of God demonstrates that he is incomparable. So that leads us to the last two verses of this first section. The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Isn't that a beautiful description of just a little tiny glimpse of God's power? Descriptions like this are found throughout the Psalms of the aspects of creation and God's greatness. But I would, I would mention two others if you want to read more about this. One would be Genesis chapters 1 and 2, where the details of creation are laid out for us. And the other one I, I really like, and Greg just read a piece of it there this morning, is Job chapter 38, actually 38 through half of 42, where everybody's had their say and God has his say at the, at the end of the book. And God just grills Job. And because it's God's inspired word to us, he grills us, too, with these words on the absolute authority and control that God has over every aspect of all the universe. So I'd send you to those two for more more information. So as finish this introductory part on God's glory, the introduction on praise, move on to the next section, and I call this God's guidance. He struck down the firstborn of Egypt, the firstborn of men and animals. He sent his signs and wonders into your midst, O Egypt, against Pharaoh and all his servants. He struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, and all the kings of Canaan. And he gave their land as an inheritance, an inheritance to his people, Israel. We'll just stop with that part for right now. So again, in Genesis chapter 15, God told Abraham that his descendants would be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years, but that God would punish that nation and bring the people back to the promised land. So what happened? Jacob, who was Abraham's grandson, had 12 sons, and they are the 12 tribes of Israel. Through one of those sons, Joseph, and a famine in a land over here, the whole family packed up and moved to Egypt, where they were the good guys for a little while, but eventually they were enslaved. How long do you think they were there? 400 years, exactly as promised. I wonder if it was to the day, even. I don't know. But 400 years. God wanted them to return to the promised land, but Pharaoh resisted and would not let the people go. And so God punished the nation of Egypt with plagues or judgments until they were allowed to leave. And you can read all about this in the early chapters of the book of Exodus. In our passage today, though, the greatest and final plague is listed first. God struck down the firstborn of Egypt. Let me just read you a verse from that in Exodus chapter 12. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. This is the story of the Passover that's still celebrated today. Note that the psalmist specifically mentions that the firstborn of men and animals died. The deaths of the firstborn animals not only increase the the intensity of the act, 
but the Egyptians worshipped many animals at that time. So it was an attack on their gods and their god structure as well. After this, then, in our passage, the psalmist lists together the rest of the signs and wonders that God did ahead of that final plague, and those are in Exodus chapter 7 up to the end of 12 that I just read, so you can read all about those too. Let's look down now at the next two, three verses here. God states that Abraham's descendants would take the cities of their enemies and take possession of the land. But remember, these city nations have had 400 years to establish themselves, build their fortifications, develop their armies, strengthen and fight and practice and all that. We're told here of two specific instances of God's victory in the conquest of the land. The first to go is Sihon, king of the Amorites. Now, he wasn't in the promised land, but he was on the way to the promised land. This dude wouldn't let the Israelites go through his land. All they wanted to do was pass through, and he says, nope. He came out with his army, and he was defeated in battle. And that's described for us in Numbers chapter 21. The next guy was Og, king of Bashan. And it says in Numbers 21 that he came out with his entire army against the people of Israel, and they were completely defeated. And it says in Numbers, leaving no survivors. So the Israelites killed every single person in that army that came out to meet them. These two kings are especially important in the victorious history of Israel on the way to the promised land. The people have been wandering for nearly 40 years because of their disobedience to God. And so these two battles really strengthened them and trained them for all the battles that they were going to have to fight once they got into the promised land. Interestingly, both of these kings, Sihon and Og, are mentioned numerous times in songs and prayers as examples and reminders of God's provision for his people. So you can read about them many places through the Old Testament. Next we're told that all the kings of Canaan were struck down and killed. These would have been the kings that lived in the promised land, roughly today's Israel. Not only were these kings defeated, but their land became the inheritance for the Israelites. In the book of Joshua, chapter 12, we're given a list of these kings by name. There are 31 of them in all. So it lists the king and their primary city. So they're all listed for us. That the Israelites would live in the promised land was predicted. Remember Genesis 15? God made a covenant with Abraham and promised him that though he was old and had no children, his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the heavens and the grains of sand. And they would possess this land. These mighty acts of God that are listed here and documented throughout the Old Testament, they're repeated, retold, remembered, celebrated, here and in many other psalms and prayers and victory songs and just in general recounting of Israel's history. This section of God's guidance would have had a tremendous impact on the original hearers because they would have known that history and this would have reminded them of it. It should have great significance for us, too, when we think about God's provision for his people. So when I read the Psalms and I read about what God did then, I think about, well, what's God doing in my life then? So I want you to take a second right now and start thinking about something that God has done in your life that you need to write down and remember, retell, and celebrate. Which brings us right into verse 13. For through praise, God reminds us of this again. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, through all generations. His name and his renown speak to his almighty power. 
And the words forever and through all generations speak to the eternal nature of God. Seems like a really fitting place to throw in another little verse of praise right after all this example of the provision of God. Let's look now at verse 14. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The word that just jumped off in giant font to me when I read that was vindicate. So what does vindicate mean? I went back to Webster, and it says to clear from accusation, to uphold by evidence, to maintain or defend against opposition, to avenge, to exonerate, to lay legal claim to by claiming is free. So we may think of this as God promising that he would protect Israel, but really it's a lot stronger than just protection. He will clear them from all accusations from the other nations that say God is not the true God. He will avenge them and he will claim them as his own people. Is there something in the New Testament we can read about? If we go to Romans 8.1, it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. That's God's vindication for us as believers, that we can celebrate when we read about his promised vindication of the nation of Israel back in the Psalms. The second part of this verse states that he has compassion on us, his servants. Are you in need of compassion today? What a great thought. What a great promise to have the compassion of the almighty God surrounding us today. So before we move into the next section, I want to read another verse. Isaiah 40, 18. And it seems fitting that we, after what we've just studied, and it offers a complete contrast to the next section in the psalm. Isaiah 40:18 says, To whom will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? And after our study on the praise for the glory of God, his position and his power, his guidance of his people through their history, his declaration of vindication and compassion, don't you just want to say, Wow, I can't think of anything greater than God. There's nothing I can compare to God. Uh, we just leave here all charged, fired up, right? Well, there's something that God has to deal with in our lives. And it comes up in other psalms too, and we'll read about it here. And I call this section, God Copies. The idols of the nations are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, so will all who trust in them. You know, we could call this section, I've heard this term, the idiocy of idols. You know, as you read this, you almost want to think it's silly, you almost want to laugh, don't you? But it's so serious and so true that we can't. We have to address it. An idol is a copy, and a term I heard at my son's church recently, and maybe you've heard this term before, I had not, he called them God copies. I, I love that term. That's a new word in my vocabulary, God copies. God copies are things that we allow or we choose to replace God and all of his promised goodness and immeasurable riches in our lives. We read about silver and gold here. Silver and gold are not in and of themselves bad. God created them, and he gave us the ability to use them for, to make beautiful things and to express beautiful emotions. But here they're being used to replace the God that created them. 
We find similar descriptions in other passages in the Old Testament. There's a very lengthy one in Isaiah 44, and I want to read just two verses from it that kind of expresses the whole of that, that long passage. Isaiah 44, 16. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill.